0: You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And you may be seated, and kids, you are free to go to Kids Church. It was great being in Charleston last weekend with the family. We had a great little getaway, but we missed you all as well. And it's obviously amazing to be back on Sunday morning with our church family. So I want to begin this morning with a quote. I don't want to tell you who said this quote yet, but I want you to think about it. And, uh, and I'll just go ahead and shoot, shoot it right out to you. This is my simple religion. There is no need for temples. No need for a complicated philosophy. Our own brain, our own heart is our temple. The philosophy is kindness. So there you go. There's the quote. Uh, How does that resonate with you? What do you think about that? Maybe there's part of you that wants to say, yes, I love that. And then there's another part of you, maybe if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're like, ooh, I'm not so sure about all of that, though. There's something in there that doesn't quite seem exactly right. And usually if that's the case and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's because the Spirit is showing you that something there in that in that is a kernel of truth that's mixed with some unbiblical error. That quote is from the Tibetan Buddhist, the Dalai Lama. This is my simple religion. There's no need for temples, no need for complicated philosophy. Our own brain, our own heart is our temple. The philosophy is kindness. Now, besides the fact that no mere mortal has any business crafting and shaping their own religion. And let alone the truth that any religion that doesn't have sin and a savior intertwined in that religion is is no good. There is something there that does resonate with us, and that's this part about simplicity and kindness. Interestingly, Interestingly enough, that quote doesn't actually sound much different from another quote from Thomas Paine, who came a couple hundred years earlier, the political philosopher who was in the, in the American Revolution. He said this. He was an atheist po- politician, but he said, The world is my country, all mankind are my brethren, and to do good is my religion. See, many people appreciate a religion of kindness, from Buddhists to atheists, to people who don't even claim religion, or people who worship the almighty dollar, they worship the nanny state, they worship Mother Earth. It doesn't matter who you are. Very few people have a problem with the docile religion of kindness. You know what I'm talking about? The fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man. Just be kind, be loving. Not many people have a problem with that. It's always going to be accepted, or at the very least, tolerated. And everyone does worship something. Even if you reject the creator of the universe and the God who reveals himself in the Bible, you will find that there is something good and kind to worship. You may have to twist things. You may have to twist the definition of justice or equality to get there. You will always make it sound moral, but even the most godless people have room for religions that take no stand for the truth and just... Accommodate to whichever way the wind is blowing. That kind of religion is always popular. It's always popular, but it's never satisfying. Never fulfilling. Eventually, it's seen through for the fraud that it is, by its adherents and by its opponents. I'll give you one more quote in this intro this morning. This is by a guy named Charles Darrow. You probably know him from history. He came, became famous during the Scopes trial in our country, but he saw through the emptiness of a religion that sounds nice and lacks substance. He said religion is based on the insistence that over and above all is a purposed guiding hand that is beneficent and kind. It would not leave a hair unnumbered or let a sparrow fall unnoticed to the ground. Those who cherish such hallucinations forget that the all-loving power is inflicting tuberculosis, cancer, famine, and pestilence on the trusting, simple sons of men. Those are the words of a man who did not know Jesus Christ. Religion that begins and ends with a simple call to love and kindness falls apart in this fallen world if it does not contain the cross of Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is not simply a feel-good message of love and kindness. It's so much deeper than that. It's turning from your life of living your way, really in slavery to sin, it's apart from your Creator. It's putting your hope and your trust in the cross of Jesus Christ, in realizing that Jesus absorbed the just wrath for your sin before a holy God, and you are now becoming a new person, a new creation, who is able to love in a way that you've never been able to love before. Been able to, you'll be able to sacrifice in a sacrificial way that you never fully understood until you knew your God. Now, with the impulse of simplicity, there definitely is something there. Simplicity at its core is good. However, along the path of life, Reality gets way more complex than that, does it not? There's joy one minute, sorrow the next. Hope and tears, love and pain, poverty and abundance. We get ready and then we wait. We give and then, we're, then we lose something and we're in need. We boast, we act gently. There's power, there's weakness. There's all these intertwining things. Life just isn't as simple as sometimes we wish it would be. And I think every single one of us in this room acknowledge that. We feel that. So on one end, our faith is very simple. Repentance and faith. The simple pursuit of loving Jesus, knowing him. Jesus took my place. But when you look at who God is and who we are, sometimes living in that very simple hope can get complicated. At points mysterious, even paradoxical sometimes. Christ is alive in me, and yet here I still feel this way? I know His promises are glorious, but I'm over here, I'm pressed, I fail, I'm being tested. There's all this stuff that does not add up, so what is going on? How are we supposed to understand life that is not as simple as we desire it to be? Well, there's no better book in the New Testament to answer those questions in a deep, rich, theological way in the book of 2 Corinthians. That's where this series is. That was why we had such a prolonged intro. 2 Corinthians, if you could turn there with me. It's nice to have a religion of kindness. It sounds great. It just doesn't hold up in the real world that we're living in. And that's exactly what Paul is addressing. He's addressing all the complexities and the challenges that we face. And that's why I'm calling this series Affection in Affliction. Affection in Affliction. So let me explain why. Just give you some background before we enter into this series. That We're going to be in this book for a while, 2 Corinthians. Corinth, Corinth was a very, very popular, big, modern-day, like probably like the modern-day San Francisco, kind of like this city was like New York and Vegas rolled up into one, okay? It was a Greek port city. It had two ports, actually. It had one on the east and one on the west. There were sailors and shippers, merchants from all over the known globe. It was, it was like a melting pot, and it really was the definition of a sin city. On Paul's second missionary journey, he was led specifically to this city in a vision from God. It's called the Macedonian Call, which, which made him change course and go to Troas. And then from Troas, he went over to Philippi, then to Thessalonica, and eventually to Corinth. And when he got to Corinth, he ended up staying in Corinth for a year and a half. It was like a honeypot. God started doing amazing things. This, this wicked, moral, morally perverted city, People who were living completely foreign lifestyles to God gave their lives over to Jesus Christ. And Paul was right there. He built up the leaders of this church. He, he planted this church. He loved the people. He poured everything he had into the city. And after a year and a half, he had already raised up leaders like Crispus and Stephanus and, and Gaius and Acacius. all these guys that you see you'll, you'll see throughout this book. But he also brought in Silas and uh, Timothy. They came in from the surrounding churches of Macedonia. And even, it was such a great church. So many things were happening that were amazing. The Ephesians even sent Apollos up to be one of the pastors and one of the elders at the church of Corinth. So he moved on. Things are going well. But after a while, Paul received some very bad reports. Things started disintegrating in Corinth. And so he wrote a letter. Now, we don't have this letter. It was not inspired by God. It's not part of the New Testament canon. But this is often called the sorrowful letter. You can see it referenced in 1 Corinthians. But that letter was misunderstood. It wasn't received well. So Paul wrote another letter, which is what we call 1 Corinthians. And as a church, Doxa Church, we worked through that entire epistle back in 2019. Uh, We called that series Called Out because the whole point of that first letter, 1 Corinthians, was, hey, you've been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ, and Paul was very practically calling out all the problems in the church. Like, this isn't who you are. Like, live in your true identity. So that letter of 1 Corinthians wasn't received well. Sexual impurity, people were suing each other, they weren't tithing, they were they were getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. All kinds of practical problems that Paul was addressing. And he, from there, made a visit. An in-person visit. This is called the painful visit. And from what we can gather when you're reading between the lines with Acts and everything going on in these letters, he walked into a powder keg. Okay, The leaders that he had installed and put into place had been either replaced or overshadowed by these new leaders that came into the church at Corinth, And they slammed Paul. He ended up walking away in discouragement back to Ephesus. But here's the thing about Paul. He was not ready to give up. He loved these people. He invested in these people. So he wrote a third letter. And this letter is referred to in referred to a few different times. It's called the Severe Letter. And this one is not in the New Testament canon. It wasn't inspired by God either. But No doubt, it was intense. And he was was just going after what he thought he had to say to get these people to wake up. And by God's grace, this letter had an effect. It started to move the needle in the right direction. And so in this meantime, in this arbitration period where the church at at Corinth is kind of hanging in the balance, they're starting to respond, well, they still have a long way to go, Paul then wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians. So are you following this whole timeline? You see where we're at here with all of this? It helps to remember, like, really, 1 Corinthians was the second letter he wrote, and 2 Corinthians was the fourth letter he wrote, if you just think of it that way. And really, he's already visited twice. He's, he's like, due for a third visit. You're going to see that. It's going to come up later on. But in comparison to the last letter he wrote, it's no, this, this letter of 2 Corinthians, it's no Sunday walk in the park. But in comparison, it's like actually encouraging letter. Like things are actually picking up. So he's not going to let his friends fall apart. Everything he's worked for, he's not going to give up. And just a couple other quick contextual things before we dive into the text. I'm ready to get there just like you are, I know. Um, He wrote this letter on a scroll, okay? So this wasn't like written in one sitting like a lot of the epistles. He's writing this as he's like on the road and as he's getting updates in real time. So, things that you, you'll read in chapter chapters 1 and 2 might sound a little bit different when we get into like 6 and 7 because it's a fluid situation. The people are like working through all of this stuff and they're dealing with a lot of this stuff. So, he's getting reports in real time and he's writing it down in a scroll. The other part I already alluded to is that Paul is being attacked from within the church. The new leaders of the church at Corinth, Paul calls later on, the super-apostles in the Greek, the hooper-apostles, okay? These are Greek orators that are flashy and grand and, like, perfect, okay? Paul is this short, bald guy who has, like, physical afflictions, and in comparison to these really flashy Greek orators, he looks pretty bad, okay? And, and, and they're, they're really smooth and polished, and they make him look bad, and they actually attack him. So, they're taking emphasis away from the glory of God, and putting the emphasis on themselves. That's what he's dealing, dealing with, with the leadership. They have the looks and skills of Bruce Wayne, you know, dashing Dabonair. In comparison, Paul's kind of like the beat-up, wounded kid, Dick Grayson. He, he, doesn't, he, he needs help, alright, compared to these guys, in their minds. So, Paul takes what we traditionally think of as strength and weakness, and he turns those things on their head. In this letter, it's his most personal, his most passionate letter. He's in affliction, but he's not going to let it stop his affection. This isn't a simple letter, but it does make the inconsistencies of life make sense. This isn't a simple letter, but it does build a theological understanding of suffering that will remove the fear and the baggage that are often associated with that. This isn't a simple letter, but it does take the issues that keep us up at night, and it breaks them down into something that is simple and empowering. So you ready to go? You ready to get into this text? Take your Bible, finally. Paul's going to deprogram the way the Corinthians think, which is littered with the wisdom of man, and he's going to re-educate them with the wisdom that is from God. I know we're also barraged almost relentlessly with the wisdom of man out there. It's, it's like everywhere you turn, from, from you know, what you see on TV a politician saying to what your kid's curriculum says to what Netflix says. It's all out there, deceptively crafted half-truths. Here's the goal that Paul is giving. Deprogram out of this simple life of living on your own whatever satisfies, and re-educate to a supernatural life to display the glory of God. So verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how Paul is like creating this new Christian tradition here. He's blending the Greek, the Greek's always introduce themselves with grace to you, like charis. And the Jews always had shalom, peace. So this is a very unique Christian thing that Paul starts by saying, grace and peace to you. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by praying so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So the first point about deprogramming the way you look at life is going to be centered around trials and suffering. Point number one today, overcome affliction through the God of all comfort. Overcome affliction through the God of all comfort. So first look what it says about God. There's two names for God given here in this text, right up front. Verse three, he is the father of mercies. Remember, grace is being given something that you don't deserve, right? Grace is a gift, an undeserved gift. Mercy is God withholding something that you actually do deserve, like judgment and consequences of your sin. God is merciful. He is also the God of all comfort. There's the second name for God. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that, verse 4, here we go, what's one of the reasons why we have affliction? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are receiving from God. So I still have my mother and my father. I have not lost them yet. Some people in this room have lost their mother and their father. I will never know what it's like to experience something like a miscarriage. There's a lot of things that I don't know how to feel about. I have no understanding of that like you do who've been through them. Just like there's things that I've gone through in my life that most people in this room don't don't really understand. They haven't experienced that. But God is saying here that he, one of the reasons that we go through these afflictions and all these different things is so that we can actually, with our experience, our shared experience, comfort other people. We can go through things and it can create a platform for us to actually speak into other people. You're gonna to have to uh, excuse my voice today because I'm dealing with some of that, some of that congestion with, with uh, Paul and all that. But, but this is this is like where, the Christian faith goes from being this shiny little happy, oh yeah, be kind, be nice. To we're here in verse five. This is not a very popular verse. It's just not. How many how many Christians talk about about verse five? For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Here's your first hint of Paul turning the paradigm of shiny appearance on its head. And I need to say right here that Jesus Christ, no matter, no matter even if you don't know of anybody else who's experienced it, there's nobody in your life who's ready to speak into it because they've also gone through the same thing. Jesus Christ knows exactly what you're going through. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When Jesus was on the cross, he took everything we've ever experienced, all of the consequences of sin, all those feelings of emptiness and loneliness, Jesus took all of that upon himself. He, knows, he, he, he drank God's cup of wrath down to the last drop. He knows what, it, what it's like to feel the full effect of pain in this sinful world. But here's the paradoxical tension. Just as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort. So, if you pictured salvation as coming to Jesus and now I have this new life and there's no problems and everything that ever I didn't like is just going to go away, you have to just wipe that idea from your head. Okay, It's not in Scripture. It never was in Scripture. Just empty it into the trash bin. That's a foreign thought in this side of eternity. And now I want you to ask the question, all right, Have I shared abundantly in Christ's sufferings? I know I've suffered in this world. But are you really feeling the the same thing that Christ talked about when he said, the world will hate you? And when the world hates you, remember that the world hated me before it hated you. That's what Jesus said to his followers. Okay, Are you experiencing that kind of suffering? If you're not feeling any of that at all and you live in the modern day, you have no pushback on anything that you're, say- you're thinking you're saying, you have zero affliction in your life, you have to really stop and pause and think about what you're doing with your life. Maybe you don't know Jesus at all. Maybe you know Jesus and you're just completely in a place where he doesn't want you to be and Satan's glad that you're there and you're doing nothing so you're just coasting along comfortably. Maybe that's the case. Or maybe you're not actually getting out there and saying things and, and, and putting yourself out there, opening yourself up to take any shots at all. If I can describe this almost like in a, in a physical way, when I was a kid, I loved playing basketball. I played basketball from fourth grade all the way on up. And when I was in middle school, I remember I had some of my first like really good game time action. And after the game, I didn't, I didn't play that great. I mean, I was kind of timid. I was, I, was like, I was like a sixth grader, I was playing against eighth graders, so I wasn't doing very well. But I talked to my dad afterwards, we're driving home, this is like a really cold November night, on a blank Illinois highway, and I'm just ta- talking to my dad about the game. And I said, you know what, I didn't get any fouls, as if that was a good thing. And my dad said, well you know what son, uh, sometimes, if you're not getting any fouls, that should tell you that you're not playing aggressive enough defense. If you're out there in the court playing the game of basketball, you should be hustling for loose balls. You should be putting all of your energy in playing defense on the next guy. And if you you have five fouls, all right, you're not going to be out of the game unless you foul five times. You have an allotted amount of fouls. Put yourself out there, get aggressive, and you will get a, you know you will get a few fouls called on you. And I, I never forgot that. Okay, if I'm not getting any fouls, I should probably play harder defense, right? I should, I should pick it up. And along the same lines, I was listening the other day to a political interview and these two uh, two young women, the brilliant, smart young women, were talking to each other. They were like interviewing each other. And one of them said to the other one, you haven't lived yet if you haven't been canceled by somebody. That's just like where we're at, all right? You haven't lived yet if you haven't been canceled by somebody. So... From a spiritual perspective, are you really living for Christ if you're not putting yourself out there and taking a little bit of heat at times? I mean, are all your Christians following the Bible 100%? I mean, if that's true, that'd be great, but you probably should get some more friends too, right? Get some more friends who don't know the scripture and start investing into them. Living for God in this fallen world was never promised to be easy. Suffering and feeling despair is not a disqualifier. It really is, it's part of what we have to work through. And when you read the scripture, you see at one point Moses wanted to quit, Elijah wanted to quit. We've talked about him lately. He wanted to quit and he actually did quit for a season. Jonah tried to quit, Jeremiah wanted to quit. This side of eternity, living for Jesus, is hard. But verses 6 and 7 are telling us we're in this together. I'm supposed to lift you up. You're supposed to lift me up. We're doing this as we minister to each other and speak life into each other. Look again at verse 8. For we did not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So, you have the first reason why you experience affliction. It's to speak life into other people, to, to share your experience with other people, to encourage one another. Secondly, there's this whole other point that Paul's bringing up. The Corinthians didn't know anything about this. After he left in discouragement and went back to Ephesus, something happened along the way where mentally, And emotionally and spiritually, he was depressed after what had just happened with that painful visit. And now there's another experience, almost of death. And he's saying, you know what? Here's another reason that God puts us through affliction in this present life. It's also so that we can get over ourselves and rely on God. There's your third name for God in in this passage already. God who raises the dead. He does things that we can't do. If he can raise someone from the dead, he can do anything. I would much rather rely on that God than I would on myself. But so often, we do not get over ourselves. We will rely on ourselves until we're at the point where we can't solve the problem. We finally got to the point. Maybe maybe you're used to just swimming circles around everyone else. You got it. You're a very high-capacity person. You can do it all, but eventually you get to the point, whoa, I'm sinking. I don't know how to pick myself up, and you have to rely on God who raises the dead. I was thinking about this a lot this week as I was preparing for this message, and I even asked Julie about it last night. I was like, hey, should I share? I mean, because... The more I think about it, there's been multiple times, pretty much every season of my life, I get to this point where I can't do it. And I'm in a place where I have to rely on God. And Julie brought up the point when we first launched this church back in September of 2018. Monroe was supposed to be born like four weeks after Launch Sunday. Launch Sunday was supposed to be September 16th. And she came six weeks early. She was a preemie. So she was in the NICU for two weeks and she got out of the NICU on September 14th, my sister's birthday, and our launch Sunday was supposed to be on September 16th. There was also a hurricane that was hitting South Carolina at that time. And I, I, it's like a, that whole time was a complete blur. I remember the person who was handling our church finances, we had this account that we were paying, like went off the rails and was doing all this weird stuff. So we had to like get all that. I remember I was in the hospital, like walking out of the NICU, like yelling at this guy over the phone because I was like literally like losing my grip on it. Like it was not going well. I was at the point where I had to rely on God. Julie was out of commission. This church started, and it was obvious this is God's church. This isn't on my strength. We have human weakness all around us, but God is going to build his church, He is going to do it. We're here today, and we have a culture of people who love each other, who invest in one another. It's incredible. But God is the one who has built his church. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So we have to stop thinking about pain as our enemy. We have to completely deprogram our thinking, re-educate ourselves, To saying, you know what? God is bigger than this pain, and he can use it for his glory. Stop avoiding hardship at all costs. Stop making the goal, I'm going to coast and be comfortable. You were saved to do mighty things, and you cannot shake up this world if you're not putting yourself out there. You will just stay soft. God doesn't want that for you. It's like the old Army slogan that I used to see like on T-shirts as a kid in the 90s. You, ever, you remember these T-shirts that Army, they put them out everywhere. It said, pain is simply weakness leaving my body. Okay? That's, that's true spiritually as well. God gives you affliction so you can minister to others and comfort others. God gives you affliction so you can get over yourself and find your ultimate source of strength. The God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, the God who raises the dead. Secondly, there's another point made in verses 12 through 14, and this, is, this one is about what you value and what you do with your time. So look at verses 12 through 14 with me. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us, and we will boast of you. Point number two is pour yourself into someone who you can boast about on the day of the Lord. Pour yourself into someone who you can boast about. What are you boasting? No one likes to hear somebody boast about themselves, right? We, none of us enjoy that. Oh, there they go again, talking about all their accomplishments. Great. I'm tuning out. But when is it acceptable to boast? It's acceptable to boast when you're boasting about someone else. Hey, I love this person. This is what this guy did. This is what this girl does over here. She is so good at this. If you're boasting about someone else, that's uplifting. Yeah. All right. But not everyone has someone to boast about. It takes work to love unlovely people and to pour into them and walk with them through the ups and downs of life. It's not easy to do. On the flip side, you know what is easy? To get mad at people and to blame people and point fingers at people. You see this, don't you? Someone's in the church, and, and churches full of, of people who are sinners, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not making excuses for churches because there are bad churches with abusive leadership. But let's say you're in a church, and if you're in one of those churches with abusive leadership, you need to find an actual life-giving church. But you're in a church, and you have a problem, you've been hurt, and it's just blame the other person. And you get this really ugly situation going on where you're calling out all these other Christians in openly in front of the world, and that's, that isn't really a good testimony to what we're supposed to be sharing to the, to the lost and dying world. And you're blaming other people for your problems. That's, that's what we can fall into. That's always going to be the temptation. But Paul here has a different plan. This is a completely different idea. Like, yeah, people are going to wrong you. You're going to have to forgive them. But you need to be investing in people. You need to be loving people. Instead of pointing the finger at people, just point the finger at yourself. What are you doing to fix all those problems in the church? You're so mad about all these things happening. What are you personally doing yourself to correct those things? Because you are part of the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ gave his life for the church. Don't attack other Christians. Paul's posture is to boast about the church, to boast about the people he loves. He's highlighting the positives. Here are the people in Corinth who change their conscience and they behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. There it is again, simplicity and clarity. They're always elevated as good things in Scripture. And right here, it is the opposite of earthly wisdom. You know, the rat race of keeping up with everyone and everything, dotting every I, crossing every T, making everyone happy. Keeping up with the Joneses is exhausting. It's exhausting. And Christians can fall into the same trap. That's not what Paul is laying out for us. This is not what Jesus has for us. So remember how I told you simplicity is a good thing? It does resonate with us? This life right now that we are living is a simple pursuit. It's about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And when you strip it all back, that's what we're here for. To do this, you have to think about the people that you need to invest in. Think about the people who have invested in you. Do you have people in your life right now who are pouring into you? Do you have people in your life that you are doing something with, that you are investing in, that you can boast about in the day of the Lord? We just can't get away from the day of the Lord, can we? Like every series, Romans 8, Malachi, here we are, it's the third series in a row. We have to think about eternity. Paul's boast isn't in what he did, it isn't in his success, it isn't in his buildings, in his portfolio. His boast is in these people that he loved. And even though he was being afflicted by these same people right now, he's not giving up on them. Some of the church history nerds in the room may find this one interesting, but you may have heard of the name uh, Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan pastor in the American Great Awakening. He was a pastor for 20 years and his church actually fired him. And the Sunday before he got let go, he, he had a really rocky relationship with the elders and the leadership of his church. He, he could see the handwriting on the wall. So when his very last sermon, Jonathan Edwards, preached from this text, 1 Corinthians 12-14. through 14, And his whole point was, my job as your pastor is to invest in you to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This isn't about some big program and solving all the world's problems. It's about me loving you, teaching you the truth, and enabling you, encouraging you, and sending you out to do God's work. That's what, that's what my job is. That's what the church is for. It's to equip you. It's to disciple you. What is, what is discipleship? Really, discipleship is, is walking alongside someone, comforting someone, caring for someone, teaching them the truth. You teach them the truth, and you hand that off to someone else. You make a disciple who can make another disciple. It's an organic thing, and the church just needs to get out of the way. Like, we equip you, we pray over you, we pour into you, and then you go about your life, and you love other people, and you invest in other people. No one can do it all. There's been a lot of studies done on on circles of influence and on like how many friends you can really have at the same time. Some people may, may geek out over this. Uh, Dunbar's number is a popular one, and it says humans can really only maintain 100 to 150 relationships with any form of stability. So really only in your life, you can only be thinking about and, and really working with about 100 to 150 people, depending on what your capacity is at the average human really can't have any more than 35 out of those 100 or so people. Only 35 of those people can be relatively close relationships at one time, at one time. And then to take another step further, you can really only maintain 10 to 12 in a day-in, day day-out close relationship. I love that Brother Oslan brought up the number 12 earlier today. But yeah, you can really only have 10 to 12 close friendships, And then lastly, beyond that, to really invest, to really pour in, open yourself wide open at the deepest level, you can only have three to five of those kind of relationships. Only three to five. And I think it's also very interesting that Jesus Christ, when you look at his earthly ministry, he had that wider group of disciples that followed him. You know, he sent out the 72 at that one point in time. There was a larger number that followed him. Then he had the 12 that he really invested in, walked closely with. And then he also had the inner circle from there, right? He had the three, Peter, James, and John. He took those three to places he didn't take the other nine. We have to realize we need 12. You probably have your 35. You need 12 people. Maybe those people, are some, some of them are in your life group. Maybe some of them are in your like, family members, whatever. You also need to have three. You need to have a 3 of people that you're investing in. Maybe somebody's really investing in you. Jesus Christ modeled this. And if you are just sitting here thinking, wow, that would be nice, David. Talking about a simple time that I don't have anymore when I actually had the time to really have 12 friends and invest in three other people and have other people invest in me. I get it. Our culture is completely antithetical to this. It fights against this. You have to really buck the trends to get this, right? And if you're sitting here like, I'm just working to provide for my family, I understand that. I applaud that. And I would say, just figure out what is the next step you can take. You may not be able to get here overnight, but what's the next step you can take to get a little more balance in your life? If you're a busy mom, and you just the work never ends, right? You have kids. It doesn't matter who you are in life. Maybe it's just, all right, I have my wife, and I have, I have my kids. And that's who I'm investing in, and that's who I'm pouring in right now. Find another person, maybe in the church, who can actually talk to you, can walk alongside you. You need people that you can pour into. You need people that you can laugh with, walk alongside, that are in the same stage of life. And you also, you need it on all ends. You need the person who can speak into you, and you need the person that you can speak into. And you need the person who's right there with you, Right? We have to have that. Community is so important. And if you're far from that, don't don't have guilt over it. Just figure out through through prayer what's the next step I can take to get there. Show me, God, what I can possibly eliminate if there is anything. Because I know we are all run ragged most of the time. I know a lot of us are nonstop. There's not much space to fit in another friendship or another relationship. You need to fit in that relationship. You're not wired and you're not made to live this life without that. This is one of the reasons why community is so valuable in the church. So, so far we have overcome affliction through the God of all comfort. We have pour yourself into someone who you can boast about on the day of the Lord. And there's one more way that you can deprogram yourself away from man's wisdom into the simple faith that displays the glory of God. Point three, love deep enough to distance yourself. Love deep enough to distance yourself. This one is a little deeper. It's a little past the surface level, so follow along with me. I'm going to read the text, beginning in verse 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. You know, that last sorrowful visit was not an experience of grace. He's talking about the 18 months was the the first experience of grace. He wanted to have another good visit. Verse 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Verse 17, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. All right, so Paul's explaining something, and when you, when, you, when you look at the rest of the context of this, this book, he's under attack right now because he wrote this letter instead of visiting again. They're like, hey, where's, where is Paul? He said he was going to visit. His enemies, those, those super leaders in the church that were looked really good, that were making Paul look bad, they were getting a lot of mileage out of this. Yeah, he said he was going to visit again. He's not here yet. Paul's saying, look, I wasn't the type of person that was being all wishy-washy. I can actually plan. I can actually follow a calendar, okay? I was going back and forth over this. Let's, let's see why. Verse, verse 19. Well, he also goes off on a, an amazing tangent here in verse 19 because Paul is, his whole life is about Jesus Christ, so he immediately goes to Jesus Christ as his example and as his motivation. It's just oozing out of him. Verse 19, for the Son of God... Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Sylvania, Sylvanius, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. So Paul's talking about being wishy-washy, being the type of person that's like, yes, over here, to this person we'll say yes, and then I'll have a big conversation about no to this person over here. Like, he's like, no, I'm not going to be that way. I'm not flaky like that, because Jesus isn't that way. He's not a yes and no, speaking out of both sides of my mouth kind of God. He's a yes. All of God's promises find their yes in him. Then he goes into this amazing, amazing secondary teaching moment of verse 21. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Thank you for that theological side trail. That was, that was encouraging, that's true. All right, the spirit is involved in this. Verse 23. But I call God to witness against me, it was to spare you. So he's like, here, listen. God, as God is my witness, this is the real reason I'm not there in person. You following all this? It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for, your sta- for, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So, here we are. Love deep enough to distance yourself. Paul is saying, I was torn up about this. I wanted to visit you. I wanted to get in there and solve the problem, right? But I realized that if I did that and I made this visit right now, it would do more harm than good. He has the spiritual maturity to say, you know what? Even though I want to go in there and tell you the truth again, even though I want to get in there and just make it all work, I've already said enough and I need to step back and let the Holy Spirit move right now. Do you see? Do you see this, this deeper level of spiritual maturity that Paul has? He is telling them, hey, I love you. It's not because I'm this I'm wishy-washy person, it's because I've, I've laid out the truth, I've told you what needs to be said, and I can't force you to make the right decision. Is all I can do is let the Holy Spirit work. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get on my knees and pray about it. But I'm giving you the space. I'm, I'm making the distance between myself and you right now because the Holy Spirit is the only one who's going to change your heart. I'm not going to change your heart. And for us in our lives, we have to have a love that is deep enough. We have to have a, a relationship with God that is confident that he's the one who's going to fix the problems. We have to be so Enraptured and and confident in his work, the work of the Holy Spirit, that we have the ability to say, I'm stepping aside now and let the Holy Spirit work. Sometimes it calls for that. It takes a deep level of love and understanding. But this was not all about Paul, this was not about going down there and getting them in line. He's gonna let the situation marinate a little bit longer. Does that sound too simple? Almost too good to be true? So often we complicate things more often than not. I talk a lot to this person, a mouthful of nos over here. Talk to this person, a mouthful of yeses. Going back and forth, back and forth. Paul says, "I laid out the truth." and I'm not going to visit again until the timing is right. I don't know when the timing will be right, but he withdraws out of love. Look at that again, 2 Corinthians 2.4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know about the abundant love that I have for you. And I think right here is an amazing key as to why that severe letter started to break through the coldness. You know how I talked about that? The needle is starting to move, right? He gives us an awesome hint here as to why it's actually doing something whereas 1 Corinthians didn't. I mean, 1 Corinthians was great. I love that book. It's inspired by God. He said an amazing amount of things that needed to be said in 1 Corinthians. It still didn't solve their problems, though. Something happened in that severe letter that actually started to change the tone. What was it? He opened his heart and shared his abundant love that he had for them. There's something else here that you cannot miss. In the beauty of simplicity, sometimes the only thing you can do to break through is to say, I love you. No matter what's going on here, I just want you to know, I love you. I care for you. You can say a lot of truthful things, and sometimes they won't hear you until they see that you love them. That's how you make a complex problem very simple. You love the other person. I love you, and I want what's best for you. I hope parents of teenagers are listening to this. I hope people who are in really complicated working environments with all these relationships going one way or the other are listening to this. I hope parents who have five and six-year-olds and two-year-olds are listening to this, right? We all need this. In those complicated situations where life doesn't make sense, you wish you could solve the problem for this other person, step back, let them know you love them, and let the Holy Spirit work. You can always speak the truth in love and step aside. Paul did this because he was walking with Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus and you choose to walk with him rather than react, then you too, through the power of the resurrection, through the, through the God who raises the dead, you can do the same thing. Would you please stand with me? We're going to respond to this truth with one voice praising God our calling is to be driven by love sorry I worship him I didn't have you come up yet but we're gonna we're gonna worship him and we're gonna we're going to ask him and tell him that we need more of his truth his spirit his character in our lives to be driven by love We are called to be people who are known by our love for one another. You're not going to get that if you're pointing fingers at other people and always getting mad at the next person. To have those kind of relationships, those enduring relationships, you have to have forgiveness. You have to have humility. You have to remember that, yeah, I make mistakes sometimes too, just like that person made towards me. But no matter what, I'm going to let that person know I love them Jesus loves them, and let the Spirit lead. Our calling is to be driven by love. And we only get that love when we know our Savior. He gives us the kind of love that we won't get without Him. You can be a very loving person, but if you don't know Jesus Christ, it is impossible for you to taste and know the same sacrificial love that He had for you. Let's praise Him for that. Let's worship Him for that. Sing with us.